Okay, so we're up to Peric Yud. And it's sort of a continuation of Peric um, Tet. Peric Tet. Okay, hello. Hello, hello. Um, Peric Tet, we just, uh, we did last time. Peric Tet. Hi. Um, yeah. Nice to see everybody. So in Perik Tet, we have this sort of strange story of Shaul looking for the donkeys. And we get kind of his like uh, origin, his family, you know, who they were. And we find out that he's a very special young man. He's Shechma Vamala, you know, uh, head and shoulders above the nation, you know. He, he's the best in the whole nation, right? You know, in Israel, Toby Manu, he's the, the most special, the most wonderful. And we find out that he is on this quest to find his father's donkeys. And um, this gets very strange because like the donkeys are not supposed to be wandering so far. And this goes on for a few days, him and his youth, and they're looking and they meet Shmuel and Navi. So, Hashem has told Shmuel that he's going to meet someone from, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's going to be the next king. So we have this, um, you know, we as the reader gets to, you know, to see all these things coming together, where Shmuel is being told by Hashem that Shoal is coming, and Shoal doesn't know anything that's going on. He's just, you know, his servant says to him, let's go ask the Nabi where the donkeys are, which is kind of odd if you think about it. You know, it seems odd to us because at that point in time, and we talked about this last week, the, what we consider the Navi, who was the, the sidekick of the king, the Navi and the king worked together as leaders of the nation. That's a split of the function of the judge. The judge was everything. But now the rulership, the political military leadership is the king and the spiritual leadership is the Navi. And before this time, the Nabi had many functions, and one of them was to like help people with their with their things. So they went to go ask him. And when this meeting happens, it's kind of a very beautiful, amazing situation where all of a sudden, Sha, you know, Shmuel tells Shaul, don't worry about the donkeys because you're going to be the king. He gives him this very broad hint that he's going to be the king. And Shaul had no idea this was coming. He's totally startled. But then Shmuel, instead of answering, he says, what are you talking to me about that for? I'm too, you know, I'm just from Benjamin, we're the youngest tribe, we're the smallest tribe. They're actually on the outs after the Misa at the end of Shelfton with the concubine of Geva and the civil war. He's like, what do you mean? He's totally shocked. But Shmuel, instead of really answering him, takes him to a very select dinner and he puts him at the head and he says, takes out a special portion for him and they have these talks late into the night and early in the morning. And as, you know, things develop, it becomes clear that Shoal is getting this kingship, something he totally did not expect. And now um, we move to chapter 10, where we have the continuation of the, you know, selection of Shoal as king and a lot of strange things go on. So we're going to screen share. We'll take a look at this story. Okay.
So I usually like to first show you how the peric is divided, but I'm beginning to uh, not find a common ground with this, with this edition because they are giving you from verse one to 16 as all one story. And I think it should be divided up further. I think um, verse one to nine is this whole discussion you see. Here there's a, a paragraphing in the text. That's the discussion of his upcoming kingship. And then you have the, the things that happened to him, right? And the aftermath of them. And then you have the second half starting in verse 17, right? We see how the lottery takes place. Now, just a little background here. Let's go to this edition, which is better edition, a little background here. It's a problem for Shmuel to say to everybody, here's your king, right? God sent him because, um, you know, people are skeptical and people are cynical. And he wants, you see, you'll see as we go through the chapter, you'll see that Shmuel, even though Shmuel and God initially really oppose the idea of king and it's sort of a concession. Shmuel wants to do everything possible to help Shoal succeed. And anointing him is not gonna be, you know, showing everybody that he's now the king is not gonna really work. So the second half of this chapter is gonna be devoted to a lottery so that Shoal will actually be chosen in the presence of the Kohen Gadol and the Umbatumim, the breastplate, and so, and of course, the, the Navi will be there. And so it will, it will be clear to everyone that this is Hashem's choice. And that's a very important part, component of this selection. It cannot be that Shmuel says, oh, here's the king God sent him. It's better for him to demonstrate to the people that this selection is from God. Now, the first half of the Perek has a sort of strange component where Shaul is anointed, and then he has um, a sort of journey to go through until he actually, you know, achieves the status of king. And it's a very, it's, it's cryptic stuff, and um, we'll go through it and try to make sense out of it. But uh, one thing that's worth doing, and I'm not going to do it now, but we'll maybe do it uh, in chapter 16, in chapter 16, unfortunately, Shaul's story is fairly short, chapter 9 to chapter 15, and then he's already uh, on the way out. In chapter 16, Shmuel anoints David. And the anointing of David is a very sharp contrast to what we're going to see here, the anointing of Shaul. The anointing of Shaul. Pasuk Aleph. So if we switch to chapter 16, which we're not going to do right now, you can see the very sharp differences. First of all, the Pacha Shemen. Now, generally speaking, the kings were anointed with a Karen Shemen. And the Gemara talks about this. Right? Here. 
דוד ושלמה שנמשכו בקרן נמשכה מלכותן, שאול ויהו שנמשכו בפח לא נמשכה מלכותן. The Gemara shows you, David and his son Shlomo were anointed with a Karen. Now what's a Karen? A Karen is a horn. So if you think of a shofar, the ram's horn, the, uh, this is a, a vessel that's quite strong, right? Actually, we were in spot on a teal, and one of the things we did was um, sort of form shofars, which was actually quite fun. And it's a, it's a sturdy material, and the opening that you make in the shofar is like a big job. You know, they had to do that with an electric drill. I don't know what they did before they had electric drills, but that is the thing where you take the horn, you have the horn and you put the oil in there. A pach is a, an earthenware jug. So it's sort of symbolic. The same way you drop a, you know, a jug, it's going to break. So the kingships of, of uh, Shaul and later on Yehu are kingships that don't, they're not really going to last. Whereas those who were anointed with the horn, with the Karen, they did last. There are actually opinions that the oil was different, that this is just a, a persimmon oil, not exactly the uh, Shemin HaMashifa. It's a very um, big debate, so we're not going to go there. But that's one. He pours the oil on Shaul's head. And there is, you know, they make it in the shape of a crown, apparently. And it says here, he kissed him. Now, this particular uh, show of affection is reserved for Shaul. And I, I, again, I always, I always want you to pay attention to the nuances because the Tanakh doesn't tell you things for no reason. You see here that Shmuel has affection for Shaul. They've been talking most of the night. He sees what a fine, modest, humble, uh, you know, beautiful Midot, and he's, he's becomes attached to him. This kiss is a kiss of attachment. Now, the truth is that the Gemara talks about kisses as well, but this I have for you in the Radak. Just finding the Radak. Okay, Radak. Badrash. All, I'll give you a loose translation. All kisses are uh, insignificant, except for three. A kiss of greatness. So I guess we would say this is a kiss of greatness. Mm -hmm. He's conferring mm -hmm. upon him kingship. Right? Nishikasho uh, prakim. Right? This is the, the kiss of a person who is um, what do we call prakim? And a reunion. This is the kiss that uh, here. This is Aaron and Moshe getting together after a long uh, absence. Nishikasho gedula, right? That's here. Nishikasho prakim. That's Moshe and Aaron. Nishikasho prishut. That's the third one. That is parting, the kiss of parting. And that we have Orpa in Megillah Ruth. Orpa kisses Naomi and leaves. Rev Tenhuma adds a, rel uh, a kiss of relationship, which is what happened when Yaakov meets Rachel. That actually is debatable. And that's another question. But we have here this kiss 
is a sign of Shmuel's affection for Shaul. And then we have Halo, which is a confirmation and a, and a uh, solidity, right? Halo, isn't it true that God has anointed you to on his Nahala, on his people, Linagid? And here we have another interesting thing. He does not call Shaul Melech. He says Nagid. Nagid is a prince, a governor. It's not a king. Now, there's no question that Shaul is king, and he is called king in different places. But it's quite significant that at this point in time, he is not called king. He's called Nagid. So we have certain hints right here in the beginning that there's something a little off here. This is not the end game. This is not where we really want to go with kingship. Sorry. And that's right there in Pasadena. Let's go on. Okay. Pasuk Bet. And here's where it gets a little strange. I think I'm going to go through a few of these Pesukim first, and then we can go back and sort of try to make sense out of them. Pasuk Bet. Belachtecha yom eimadi matzat shnei rishim u'kvurat rachel v'gvul binyamin v'tzeltach. Okay, so Shaul is now going to be leaving Shmuel's presence, and he's going to be traveling back home. So if we're going to go through our map, which you think is a good idea. Okay, let's try to figure this out. Okay, Shaul lives here, Givat Shaul. Okay, not to be confused with Gibat Shaul of today, which is in central Yushalayim. Gibat Shaul here is further north of the city, um, the, the infamous Gibat of the story. This was a Binyamin area. Now, in terms of the tribal divisions, you see here Jerusalem in this map. I don't know if you can see this so well. Let's make it bigger. Okay, can you see now? There's Jerusalem. Gibat Shaul is north of Jerusalem. Beit Lechem is south of Yerushalayim. So we have a very weird pasuk here. Of course, uh, um, Shaul has gone north, north and he's been in somewhere here, let's say, uh, where would he be? In Ramah, in Harifraya, Bonagid, let's say it's here. And he's going to be traveling south to Gibat Shaul. He's not going to get to Beit Lechem. He's not in that direction at all. So we have a little bit of an issue here with this Pasuk. And um, going back to the Pasuk, right? You're going to find two men at Kever Rachel, at the border of Binyamin, at Tzeltzach. Okay, now what's Tzeltzach? We never heard of Tzeltzach. Okay, so Rashi says, let me show you the Rashi. Rashi says that Tzeltzach is, the, is the, in the shadow of the pure one. Sale is shadow, and the pure one is Hashem, and that is a reference to Shalai. And the Mepharshim, actually, I have to say, they don't know what to do with this, because he's not going to Kevarachal. He's not going there. So they come up with this idea, right? Rashi says, mm-hmm. I don't understand, Rashi says. Isn't the Kevarachal in the border of Yehuda in Beit Lechem? Right? Why are we saying that it's here? Silence. I actually have a new phone and I don't know how to turn it off. 
get there. Okay, so so we have to figure these things out. But he's going to meet these two people. Rashi says, right? They are now traveling up north. Toward, they're leaving Kevin Rachel now, and they're going You're going to find them on the border of When you're going down, you're going to see them there. This is very strange, right? And we find that in the Tosef uh, Sota, in, in the Gemara, and Seltzaf here is Yishalayim. And it's very strange. It's really very strange. So have you ever heard of such a thing? You know, it reminds me, you know, there, there used to be this poem. I don't know if I remember this. <laughs> When I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives and seven wives and seven sacks and seven sacks and seven cats and seven cats and seven kittens. How many are going to St. Ives, right? And of course, the point of this thing is that there's only one person. You're sitting trying to figure out how many people goes, how many people go to St. Ives, and really it's just this guy. He's beating people coming back. So we have this sort of, you know, thing that Shaul is going, and on the way, he's meeting people. And each one of these meetings is significant for some reason. And it's a very big contrast to David because Shmuel anoints David and that's just kind of the end of the story. And David becomes like a new person. It says, you know, spirit of God comes upon David. And that is the end of that story. But Shaul goes through this whole like, you know, magical mystery tour and he meets these and he meets those and he meets the other one there's three incidents that happen and each one of them is kind of bizarre so the first one is he go when you leave me you're going to find two men at Kebarajo but it's not they're not at Kebarajo now they're at Kebarajo when you meet them they're going to be on the board of Binyamin it's just very strange it's very strange and if so the Dasofram asks like why are we talking about Kebarajo here at all if you know it's like saying, you know, you're going to meet your friend in Yushalayim, right? Right now he's in Beit Shemesh. But I, I'm meeting him in Yushalayim. Why, is it, why does it matter that right now he's in Beit Shemesh? It doesn't matter. So there's something going on here. So a couple of Afarshim uh, tackle this one. They say, look, who is buried in Kebarachal? Shaul's ancestress. So this is a, a way of connecting him back to his roots. Remember that you are a descendant of Rachel. And Yushalayim is in there. So we're, we're having a kind of a tour of holy places here. So let's put that on the side because we're going to try to make sense of all the signs together. And then these two people that you meet are going to tell you the donkeys were found. Remember the donkeys uh, that he was looking for. Now back in chapter nine, Shmuel said to Dorm, the donkeys, they're found. But now he gets confirmation of that because they say, the donkey's friend, and it is as he said in chapter nine. Hine, Natash Abicha, et Behold, your father is not worried about the donkeys. He left off the banner of the donkeys, and now he's worried about you. Lemor, Ma Livni. What am I going to do? Where's my son? What will I do for my son? This is a very interesting thing. Now, we talked about it in chapter nine, if you remember that Shaul says to his servant, we better go back home because my father will worry about us. And I made a point of telling you that this is a greatness of Mida in Shaul because his father's not going to be worried about us. His father's going to be worried about me. 
So this is his way of giving respect to his servant. And now you see that that's actually true because his father is saying, he's worried about you, plural, saying, what am I going to do about my son? Because the servant, let's face it, is not high on his list of worries. Now, a, a, a fascinating point that, uh, that um, my husband pointed out to me that this is one of the ways that Rabbi Sroll Salanter proved the existence of the subconscious. This is before Freud, by the way, for those of you who are into this stuff. Rabbi Sroll Salanter said, the conscious mind of Shaul's father, Kish, is saying, oh, I am worried about them. The subconscious mind is saying, my son, where's my son? Very, very interesting. Okay, so that's number one experience. Number two, the chalafta misham, you're going to pass away. It's a sort of like, you know, spring, you know, the, the spring is coming and the winter is passing away. You're going to pass out of there and go forward to this, uh, you know, either a plain of Tabor or the tree of Tabor. We don't exactly what it is, but it's not on the north. Doesn't make sense. Okay, you're going to meet now. Your next group of travelers is going to be a group of three. Okay, and they're going up to God at Beit El. So there are opinions, right? That where is Beit El? That Beit El is Shiloh. This is what Mitsuda says, but it it seems okay to say that it is actually Beit El. But they're going in the direction. In other words, Shoal is coming down this way and he's meeting people like that. my poem of St. Ives, meeting people who are going up to Beit El, which makes perfect sense to me, as a matter of fact. That's just my opinion. Now, these three people, each one has a different um, package. Okay, one of them is carrying three kid goats. One of them is carrying three loaves of bread. And one of them is carrying a flask of wine. This is all very significant, but it's like, what? So this he meets these three people, Pasik Dalek. They're going to ask how you are. And they will ask how you are, and they will give you two of the three breads, and you will take it from their hands. Now, the Radak goes into a whole discussion about it. it doesn't make any sense for three men to give away two breads to one man. Well, Charles really not one man because he's probably traveling with his servant. But he has, a, he has trouble with this. But the Pashta says that he, the, the simplest answer is that they are giving him two of their three breads. Now, Shmuel makes a point of telling him, you will take it from them. And the uh, Zasopher makes an interesting comment here. He says, if Shmuel hadn't told him to take it, he wouldn't have taken it because Shaul was not accustomed to taking things without paying for them. As we saw, when the, the servant says, let's go to the prophet in chapter nine, and Shaul says, we, we can't go without anything. I, we don't have it. Now, uh, this is also a resolution of that. The first uh, uh, situation that he meets these people resolves the problem of the donkeys. The donkeys are found. The second resolves the problem of the bread is gone from our vessels that he says to the to the kid. Now they're going to give me the, the bread. And then in Pasuke, and this is the third thing that happened, the third situation. Now, 
שם העיר, ופגץ החבר מביאים יורדים מהבמה, לפני ימי ובצוף וחלו ובחינו והם המתנבאים, פסקו, וצוך הולך הרוח השם מתנביתה עמם ונהפכת על איש אחר. אוקיי, so the third incident, what happens is you're going to come to the Giv'at Elohim. So most of the first understand this to mean the town of Kirat Yarim, where the ark is. Okay. Others say that this Giv'at Elohim is referring to his own town of Giva, where he's going to be uh, king. But Rashi says this is Kirat Yarim. That's where the ark is. So if we're going back to our map, we're really hard to find it on this map here. Kiryat Yerim is over here, right? Now, in Kiryat Yerim, the Ark of God is resting there for many years, as we saw in chapter 7. And you're going to go there, and there, there are Plishti commissioners. And that's a very interesting comment. What are the Plishti commissioners doing there? And it seems, you know, that they were set up, Plishti was set up you know, uh, garrisons all over the country, just to remind you that we're here. So according to Rashi, they would make trouble. Rashi says, right, they, they were ruling with the hard hand. But there were other Mepharshim who say, no, they actually just were demonstrating their presence. So this is also a reminder of one of the reasons that we need a king, or that the people feel they need a king, is because the Plishtim are threatening them. When you get to that city, okay, as you're going up toward the city, okay, which is Aliyah, right, with Telstone today, right, you will meet a band of prophets. Hevel, now Hevel is a rope. So a rope is something that's tied through time. So this is also a band, right? This is what Rashi says. And they're going down from the high place and they have musical instruments. Neva v'tof v'chalil v'chinoro. A tof is some sort of drum, like a beating thing, right? or a symbol, Khalil is some sort of flute thing. Nabal and Chinor are sort of uh, variations on string in instruments. And of course, if you look at the tail of this Nabal, Asor, right, and the Chinor, there's a lot of different string instruments that, that are used. And Hema Mitnabim. So if you notice the word Mitnabim is a Hitpael. They are prophesizing themselves, prophesying themselves, how would you say that? They are actually students of prophecy. Now, if you remember back in chapter three, when it says that Shmuel gets prophecy, other people get prophecy. So we'll find from here on in that prophecy has come back. A prophecy has burst forth, as, as it says over there, right? In Chazon Nefrat, now Chazon has come back. And there are people who are actually studying how to be prophets. And one of the instruments, that's a, um, an intended pun there. One of the ways that they got themselves to prophecy was through music. And we see the Suda says here, right? The music is to make them happy, to make uh, prophecy come upon them. Right? The, the, uh, the idea is that, and this is like an important thing, we really didn't talk about uh, a lot of the things we learned from this section, but one of the things here that's very clear is that a person cannot get close to God in a depression. And prophecy is a closeness to God. And in order to attain that, you need to be in a certain state of happiness. 
That's why um, Yonah runs away, right? Because according to the Medrash, Yonah was in the Beit HaMikdash, but the Simcha Beit HaShoeva. And that's when God spoke to me, he said, I don't want any part of this, I've got to get away. And perhaps on a boat, I'll be too nervous to be happy and get Nebuah. But he, in the story of Elisha, Elisha is, is a little depressed from the things that he's heard. So he says, I can't go on unless I have music. Bring me a musician. And here is something like a, a brilliant thought for us to think about it. Here we are in the three weeks that we're not, we're supposed to be, um, you, know, ta- uh, you know, bringing down our level of simcha. Simcha, music, they're related. And they are things that help us get closer to Kodesh Baruch Hu. Something very, very interesting to think about. Now, um, okay, and the Spirit of God will come upon you, like it will be full upon you. Um, it's probably related to success, but um, it's not really that used like that in the Tanakh. Right, it's going to come upon you, the Spirit of God, and you will also prophesize, and you will turn into a different person. New man. Okay, now, first of all, we mentioned that David did not have to go through anything like this. Shmuel anoints him, chapter 16, Ezrat Hashem, and we'll talk about it, but here, Shmuel has to go through these things. So the question is, what exactly is going on here? It's actually fascinating. The Mepharshim go into this in great, great depth. We don't have too much time for it. I'll just give you a few of the ideas and see you can see what resonates with you. So Rosh and the Mitsudas take the, the line that these are all proofs that he's going to become king. So there, there is a sort of problem with Shaul. From the very beginning, he's just a nice family guy. He's just helping his dad for his donkeys. He, he's like Cinderella. Like, I didn't want to be the princess. I, what am I doing here? And you're the king. And he's, he's kind of, what we find, he's sort of bashful. He's like, who me? Are you sure about this? There's this element of not quite grasping that he's going to be the king. So it makes sense to say that one of the reasons for these signs is to prove to him that he indeed is becoming king. Um, The other thing, okay, the Das Sofrim, the Das Sofrim says something very interesting. He has not got to the level yet that he's supposed to get and these experiences are going to make him holier. And each one of them has to do with a holy place. If not two holy places, we've got here Kevin Rachel, we've got Yerushalayim, we've got Beit El, we've got Givat uh, Elokim, uh, where the Ark of God is. And all of these experiences are going to elevate him and make him holier and holier and holier so that he will be ready to receive prophecy and to become the leader of the Jewish people. So that's one idea. The Malbim, okay, so I, 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 so there's no time to go into all these things. I'll just give you the, 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 the Malbim says that what he's doing here is learning about the types of people that he's going to rule. 
It's very, very ugly. I mean, they're so fascinating, these, these ideas. He says, the first group of people are, their neshamas are dead. That's why they're in the camera. It's so interesting. <laughs> they're materialistic. A, a, a donkey, another word for donkey is chamor. Chamor is chomer, materialism. They're only interested in the material things. And right, there's a, those are the type of people. They're bound to the earth, right? The second type of people that you're going to meet are people who are striving for greater um, holiness, but there's also a subdivision there. You have the people, they're going to Bainale, they want to achieve greater uh, spiritual heights, but there are different types. One of them is carrying um, uh, animals for sacrifice. So that's like, he's going up and he's going to uh, serve, serve Hashem with a uh, pure heart. The second one is serving Hashem for bread, for sustenance. And the third is serving Hashem for luxuries. That's the navel, the symbol, symbolism of the navel. And that's a, you know, those are the second type. Those are the ordinary folks. I'm trying, striving, trying to be better. And the third type of people that you're going to meet are those people who are really spiritual. They're really the Shama. Those are the people who are uh, becoming godly and becoming prophets. Now, the Abarbanel also has a very interesting thing. And he says each one of these is a test to pass about your relationships with others. And the first one is your relationship with your family. You are now leaving uh, inter an interest with your family. It's not important to you anymore because now you're the king of everybody. So the first thing is your father, the donkeys, it's history for you. The second thing is your, these are the common people. And the common people, right, you have to interact with them on a very basic level. In other words, the ones that are interested in meat, right, the ones who are interested in meat, that's sort of predatory. They want meat. That's a little bit. You have to be merciful. You're not interested in meat. You can take bread from them because they are obligated to sustain you. But you can't take wine, and he quotes here the Barbadale in, um, in Mishlei, where the king's mother, there he's called Lemuel, right, Shlomo, kings are not allowed to drink wine. Okay, why aren't kings allowed to drink wine? Obviously, because they need to be prepared at all times to, to govern. So it's a very, very interesting thing. So this is symbolic of your relationship with people. And the last part, right, is your yachas to God, right? You have to... Um, uh, enter the spiritual world, and this is this is going to elevate you. So you see, these are very terrific and fascinating ideas. But let's go on. Pasuk Zayin. Vahayaki tavona haototah elon lach asel chashetim sayadecha kielokinima. When these things happen to you, right, do what comes to hand because God will be with you. So I think that we should remember if we're trying to uh, take out our life's lessons that. All of our experiences are markers in some way toward our mission. So some things will be more difficult. Some things will be more simple. Some things will be uh, painful. Some things will be happy. But we're all heading for the goal that Akash Baruch set for us. And we have to take our experiences and use them to elevate ourselves. 
And as a matter of fact, we also have to remember where we came from. Remember that he is a son of Rachel. So I find this to be a lesson that we can all extract. But, you know, all of our markers on the way. And it's interesting that this week's parsha is Mase, Matos and Mase. And Mase, we have um, all these stops. We're talking about all these stops. And all these stops are the, are the travels of B'nai Israel on the way to the land of Israel. And each stop is like our journey in life. Each stop teaches us something. And um, we should be trying to extract the correct lessons from whatever happens. Okay, and then some strange things happen to Shaul. Actually, this Pasuk has to stand by itself because this is an extremely important Pasuk. We will get back to it. It's crucial and it's kind of stuck in here as an afterthought. It, just in case you think it's not important, it is a turning point in Shaul's life. And the Mepharshim speak about it here, the Radak in particular, this edition doesn't have Radak. But what does it say, Pasekhek? You will go down before me to Gilgal. Now, where's Gilgal? Gilgal is where Yeshua crossed into the land of Israel, right? Gilgal. Something's going to be happening in Gilgal. You're going to go down there before me. This is Shmuel speaking. And I'm going to be coming to bring up sacrifices. Wait for me seven days until I come to you. And then I'll let you know what you will do. And it's sort of stuck in here as like, it sounds like it's going to be, you know, the next thing on his agenda, but it's not. It's going to be a bit in the future and it's going to be the turning point in his kingship. Will he, and, and the Radak says he's given this command now because this is the hinge that his whole kingship rests on. Is he going to be able to fulfill his command? And it sounds so simple. Wait seven days until I come to you. And it's not going to be simple for Shaul at all. Okay, Pasuk 10. Now we go back to the signs. Pasuk 10. As he turns away his shoulder, God switches on. This is before the signs, the three signs, and the three signs happened at that time. But before they happened, God is switching his heart, giving him a special, that special spirit of the king. Now, it's very interesting because we're just going to go to, straight to the third um, sign or event, whatever you want to call it. And they came there to give up. And there was that band of prophets coming down to greet him. And the spirit of God came upon them. I fondly named them the singing seers. Or perhaps the playing prophets. A band of prophets. And they're musical. And we skipped the first sign with the two men who tell him the donkeys are found. We skipped the second time, uh, the second event where the three men with their strange, you know, different types of food, they give them the bread. And we go straight to this prophetic experience. And as soon as he gets to that point, he's gone through the first two signs, he gets to the third side, and all of a sudden, prophecy comes upon him. And 
And there, and it was that anyone who knew him before, don't forget he's on his way home now. Now he's beginning to meet people he knows. And anyone who knew him from yesterday or the day before, which is the biblical expression for previously, and saw, excuse me, they saw that he's prophesizing with prophets. And they said one to the other, right? What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Shaul also among the prophets? And a man spoke up and said, so who's their father? It became a parable, right? Is Shaul also among the prophets? Now, what does this expression mean? Right? Anyone who knew him before knew that he had never had prophecy before. This is Shaul also. What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Shaul also amongst the prophets? Now, the man who speaks up to answer is answering the what has happened to the son of Kish. Right? And he's saying, we don't know who the fathers of any of these other prophets are. What is this story? What's going on here? It's a strange sort of thing, right? There seems to be two questions. Why is Shoal a prophet if his father wasn't a prophet? And how could he be a prophet in, in his own self if he's never been a prophet before? So the, the man answers the first question. <laughs> Prophecy is not Yerusha. If the, you know, if you look at the, the names of the prophets, right, in the Tanakh, you'll find that if, if the prophet is listed with his father, like Yonah ben Amitai, Yeshayo ben Amotz, Chazal say that their father was also a prophet. But there were prophets like that we don't know who their father is, and that signifies that the, they do not get, the fathers do not get prophecy. So the answer to the first question is, prophecy is not Yerusha. Prophecy comes upon people, you know, either way. It could, right? Now he, how come, the second question would be, how come he became a prophet, right? And it seems that he is now worthy of it. Up until now, we didn't know this about him, but he has made himself worthy of it. So now it became a mashal in, in the sense of a, a, an expression, right? When you see a person who gets to a great level of some kind, and it's kind of unexpected, you knew him when, so to speak, so then you say, Hagam and by the way, these expressions that we find in the Tanakh are still in use today. They're not, you know, among the general population, it's not the way, you know, people talk to each other daily, but the, you know, the sophisticated Israeli will use these expressions just as they're used in the Tanakh. It's quite interesting. It's like quoting Shakespeare, how do Okay, so now we go on. So this experience is over and he goes to the, he, he comes to the high place and he meets his uncle. And he meets his uncle and says, where, where were you guys? They're gone for days, right? And they said, we went looking for the donkeys. We couldn't find them. So we went to Shmuel. 
Now the uncle's very interested in that. Tell me, please, what did Shmuel tell you? You spoke to the prophet, the great Shmuel. What did he tell you? He told us that the donkeys had been found. And the matter of the kingship, he did not tell him that Shmuel had said. So right now, okay, when we saw at the end of chapter nine, Shmuel says to Shaul, tell your servant to go ahead. And he tells the servant to go. He doesn't even have to tell him. The servant is such a, you know, a sharp kid that he, he hears Shmuel saying that and he goes ahead. So really the only two people know, there are only two people who know that Shaul has been anointed and that is Shaul and Shmuel. And Shaul is not telling. So the question is, why doesn't he tell? So generally speaking, the Mephreshim understand this to be praise of Shaul, that he's very modest and he's very discreet. And in fact, we trace the entire family of Rachel as discreet. Here. No. Oh, I forgot to tell you that. That's a great Rambat. I forgot to tell you that one. Okay. I'll show you in a second. Okay. Here. So we start off with Rachel. Rachel doesn't tell that uh, Leah, doesn't, she, she doesn't want Leah to be embarrassed. So she doesn't tell um, uh, that she, it's not her. He doesn't so she, uh, because of that, she merited to be the ancestress of Shaul. So this story goes on and on, right? And what was the modesty of Shaul? It says, it's he doesn't tell his uncle that he's been uh, selected as king. And because of that modesty, he was Zohar to have Esther as his descendant. And Esther, right, she doesn't tell her, right? Um, okay, that's how this whole discussion, this is the Gemara Megillah, so we'll go back. Uh, I just wanted to mention this is a really beautiful Ramban, I really digress. Let me finish the paragraph and I'll go back to the Ramban. We have uh, time for that. Okay, so that's a great merit. Uh, the first one seems to be a great merit that he, he's discreet in a certain sense. He doesn't puff himself off, right? And, and it's something to, to learn from Shaul. Even though later we, we can have a lot of uh, questions about his behavior, there's certainly something very dignified about Shaul, very discreet, very fine. He's a very fine human being. Okay, Pasuk Yitzai. Now we have switched gears, and now we're going back to the prophet. And Shmuel gathers the people to the place of mitzvah, this is a common gathering place. We saw that in chapter seven. Now, notice there's a pay in the middle By the way, this just means that we are we are separating um, a human being speaking in this in this pasuk and God speaking. We're giving when there's a, a stop in the middle of a pasuk like that. It's it's usually to show you that one part of the pasuk is kadosh. This is the preface to the lottery. 
Hashem says, I took you out of Egypt. I saved you from the Egyptians. I saved you from all the people. Remember the whole Savior Shoftim, the whole Savior Yeshua, all of the kings that were oppressing you. You have rejected God who saves you from all these people, right? And it's it's interesting that Hakadosh Baruch Hu now is going to give them the king, but he just wants to remember, guys, you having the king, you asking for a king is a rejection of my uh, leadership and all the times I saved you. Are you under the king? Okay, so stand up here, stand up according to your tribes and your families. Al we're accustomed to being a thousand, but in this context, it means the family. Now, the question of how the lottery actually worked, okay, there's, there's a number of different uh, opinions about it. it. There's the opinion that the breastplate of the Kongoda lit up according to the tribe. So let's say if you have the 12 tribes, the tribe of Binyamin, the, the, the stone of Binyamin lights up. By the way, this is Yashpeh. And according to um, the Chazal, that is a, sim, um, uh, a hint to Yeshpeh, that Binyamin knew that Yosef had been sold by his brothers, but he didn't tell. He was the son of Rachel, and he was also discreet. So first thing is Binyamin is chosen. Now, the other option is that it's an actual lottery with a box and notes in the box, and they're pulling out the notes out of the box, but it's in the presence of a Kolagadol and the Urim Betumim, and that actually will make some sense here. You'll see because we have a problem. We don't really know that that family, but it's obviously the family of Shaul. It's a classic. They pick him in the lottery. So that sounds kind of like the Petek version. They take the, the note out of the box. Right? And here, Shaul, first his family wins and then he wins. And now we have the sign of Shaul. And where is Shaul Ben Kish? And they can't find him. And they asked God and they said, Is there another person here? Like, he's not here. And Hashem said, Behold, he is hidden among the vessels. Now, again, this is an expression that we use until today. He is hidden among the vessels, which literally means that he is hiding out. It's used today as an expression meaning a person is modest. Now, the major says the kelim is a reference to the Urim Betumim, and that he ran to the Urim Betumim because he wanted confirmation that God actually did choose him. And until that happened, he would not accept it. But you have to understand that all of these signs that were being told about Shaul add up to a picture of a person who, is he 100% good with this situation, right? The Gemara says it is very hard to come to a position of greatness. And it's very hard to come down from a position of greatness. So we're seeing in Shaul that it's really hard for him to take this mantle of kingship. He's a shy person. He's a humble person. He's not 
used to all this attention and he's hiding out from it. So, okay, there's a good side to this, but we're going to see there's going to be a negative side to this. Now, till today, it's an expression for a humble person uh, hiding his light under a bushel, we'd say in, in English. And they ran and they took him from there and he stood up in the midst of all the nation and he was taller than everyone from his shoulders and up. We said, it sounded like a, you know, hyperbole, some sort of maybe expression about his, his personality, but physically he is taller than everyone else. And if you've ever seen someone of that height, and especially someone of that height with those looks, it's tremendously impressive. And Shmuel himself, the great prophet, is overcome with this wow. Wow, there's a real wow factor to show. He is really looks the part. And Shmuel says to all the nation, have you seen this one that God has chosen? There's no one like him in all the nation. This is for the same as true ah, but we're not talking about instruments here. They're shouting. Long live the king. Long live the king. The first time in Jewish history that such an expression is used for a Jewish king, Long live the king. And this is a ma'amad, this is a, a situation that's tremendously powerful. Shaul and Shmuel himself is overcome with it. He is just wow. Okay. And Shmuel speaks out the Mishpat Amrucha. And that seems to have been what we saw in chapter eight, all of the things that Shmuel said. The king can take your sons, he can take your daughters, he can take your money, he can take your this, he can take your that. The rights of the king, because the rights, the, the laws that a king can't do is already in the Chumash and Sefer Dvarah. But the laws of the king, this is what we really see, Torah Shabal Peh. In other words, this is a coming from the prophecy, the laws of what a king can do, and this is now written down by Yachtobah Sefer, by Yanach Nefi, puts it before God, which must mean with the Kohanim or with the Aron, and Shmuel sends everyone home. Pasik Chapav. Now here's a sort of anti-climax. And Shmuel also goes home. Now that's weird. Why are you going home? Don't you have other things to do? Do what comes to your hand, Shmuel said, because God is with you. But the answer is in Pasik Amru. And the bad people said, how is he going to save us? They despised him. And they despised him and they didn't bring him any gifts. Now it's customary to bring the king gifts. So when Shmuel says, they give you the bread, bread you could take. You don't have to take meat because that's, that's not a merciful thing. Meat is predatory. You don't have to take wine. Wine is not good for kings, but you could take from them because they're going to sustain you. They're supposed to come and bring you gifts. But these guys, and it's so interesting, the contrast, the ones who accept them are the ones that God touched their hearts. And the ones who are bad will say, like, well, what good is he? He's a useless, pretty boy. What the heck is he going to do for us? And they said, oh, we're not interested in him. 
But the reaction of Shoal is the one that we have to focus on here. The reaction of Shoal is, doesn't say anything. He has a remarkable um, patience, shall we say, tolerance for people who are, you know, not giving him his due. And that could be because he is so humble. It could be because he doesn't really feel that it's due to him. It could be there's something off here. Now, if you go back to this, the commission forum, it says something So there's two parts to the Jewish king. One is that you will put him upon you, you will accept him. And the other part is that God will choose him. So it's possible I'm throwing this out because of what happens in chapter uh, 11, we'll see that there's, there's an issue here. It's possible that God chose him, that's clear. There's a lottery, it's not coming out. But everyone accepting him hasn't happened yet because there are these detractors. So it could be that because of that, he doesn't feel himself ready to start doing king stuff. There's an interesting thing here um, that we have to point out because we live in a world with different types of government. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it necessary that God choose the king for the Jewish people? And I think that it's quite clear that if the people choose the king, right, and we have that today, we have democracy, it's called, right, quote, unquote, then the king is subservient to the wishes of the people, theoretically, of course, right, because power corrupts, but that's an idea. And also, right, if you have 12 tribes, everyone's going to be jockeying for position here. But once God makes a choice, it's very clear. There's no need to have discussion. And the third thought is, who will judge who is the righteous person? Only God can judge that. So the fact that God chooses him here, even though God is not really pro this whole arrangement, we're seeing that this is the best choice that could be made under these circumstances. But the people are not quite there. Most of them are the good guys, but there's plenty of people. The fact that he is silent that is definitely debatable. At, we'll refer to that next time we'll talk about it. Bezrat Hashem. There are many, many detractors among the Chazal that he should not have been silent. A king, it says, you know, in the Gemara, a father is allowed to forego his honor. In other words, a child is not allowed to sit on the father's chair. But if the kid says, can I sit on your chair? And the father's allowed to say yes. A king can never forgive his honor, which means if someone comes to the king and says, can I sit on your throne? He's not allowed to say, yeah, sure, it's okay. He, no one's allowed to sit in his throne. So he's not really supposed to tolerate distractors, but it could be that at this point, he doesn't think he's at that place. So we're, we're kind of given this position of Shaul where he needs to go through stuff to get to this place. And even when he goes through this stuff and he, he's got a new heart and he's got the spirit of God and he's had prophecy and all these great things that happened to him, there's still some sort of sense that he's not entirely comfortable with his new role. He's not entirely ready for this. And it's, uh, it's gonna present problems further on. Now, if you have patience, I just wanna show you for two minutes that beautiful Ramban that I forgot to show you. And that is on Right? Right? 
And here, the Ramban makes a very fascinating comment, because we're trying to figure out where is Keberuchel? Remember back at the beginning of the parak, it said these people are Keberuchel. We all know where Keberuchel is, because it's just, it's just outside of Beit Lechem. It's actually, you know, two minutes from Yerushalayim, right? But the Ramban went into this whole discussion of what this is and how far it is, and maybe it could be. And then he makes a comment, which I wanted to share with you, which is so special. That's what I wrote at first. And now. I merited Ubati Anili Rishalayim Shevach Lakel Hatova Meitit. And now that I've merited to come to Rishalayim, praise the great and wonderful God. Ra'iti Be'enai, I saw in my own eyes. She'en min kfurat Rachel Beit Lechem Avilu Mil. There's not even a mile between Kever Rachel and Beit Lechem. Ve'hinei Uchasha Perusha said. And therefore, I have to take back what I previously said about the, what Kivran Eretz is and where Kivran is. Okay, I think I'm going to just uh, stop the screen share, but I really, it's such a beautiful Ramban, the way he speaks about his, his great merit that he came to Eretz Yisrael and he saw that actually when you look at it with your own eyes, you say, well, no. It's not where Kevrachel actually is. Kevrachel is, you know, very, very close to Beit Lechem. He has a whole, his whole theory was debunked when he came and he looked at it. It's very, very, um, I think it's like, a, it's a godless of him to say it. It was just beautiful, the, the expression that he has, this love for Eretz Yisrael, Zachiti, right? I had this great merit, so Baruch Hashem. Okay, so, um, yeah, so just to sum it all up, we find Shaul doing these three interesting signs. We find the lottery. He's become king. And um, chapter 11, Bezrat Hashem, next week, I think of chapter 11 as Shaul's finest hour. It's a very, very positive story. And um, we're looking forward to it. I did want to raise the issue of after Tisha B'Av, if we want to take a break or not. I'm not going to say anything now. I'll just, maybe you just want to, message me privately or put on the chat, like how you feel about that. You're gonna take a break um, or not, whatever we can do it. I'm sort of open to whatever. Okay, so I can, you can unmute and we can say hi. Well, so I'm like, wow. Hi, hi. 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 I want to ask a question, sure. if possible. Yeah. Um, the choice of Shaul, seems to me to be strange. His personality is not king-like. He's not from the tribe of Yehuda, like which all along, you know, um, it seems that, you know, that's, that's you know, Yehuda was, was blessed with that king, kingship, even though Benjamin also was in a sense. But like why? Why was he chosen? Even the people are saying, "Well, he's a prophet." Like he, like nobody expected him to to have the mantle of of kingdom. So I'm asking, like, what what happened here actually? So we we talked a lot about it in chapter nine. The 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 real problem we have is that the Ramban 
in, in Baichi, there's a very, very central Ramban there. And Ramban says, Lo Yasur Shevet Yehuda, right? The, the, I'm sorry. The, Melachim Michalatzecha Yetzeu was said about. That Hashem, says that, Hashem says that to Yaakov, and that's um, when Binyamin is born. But this, this particular idea of Lo Yasur Shevet Yehuda becomes a very big problem for the Ramban, and he has to say, well, we actually went into it last last week. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't catch up to that one yet. Sorry. But many of the many of the commentaries say that there is a uh, a pasuk in Hosea, right? That I will I will um, give you a king in my anger, and I will take him away in my rage, right? Um, and that pasuk is a reference to Shaul. In other words, Shaul is a stopgap measure in a certain mm -hmm. sense, because the true king is clearly going to be David. He's from the right tribe. He's the kingship that is going to endure. He's the kingship we say, Mashiach. Ben David, we're still waiting for his descendant to be our Mashiach. So there's something about David that's supposed to happen. So He's even anointed during Shaul's rule. Right. So we, in chapter eight, we talked a lot about um, what was wrong with the way they asked for a king. And one of the theories, and this is that the, the, they bring forward, is that they asked at the wrong time. They asked with complaints. They asked, you know, in the wrong way. So because of that, Hashem says, okay, I'll let you have the king, but I'm not happy about it, right? Or, you know, the expression that always comes to my mind is, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself with. Not going to be a great thing. You want a king? You can have a king, but I don't, I don't approve. But in the event now, and it's very interesting, Barbanel has a whole different opinion than Ramban. Now, Barbanel says, what, what it means, Lord Yisrael Shevet Yehuda, Shevet doesn't necessarily mean Malchus. And even when Shaul, in the next chapter, you'll see it, when Shaul counts the people, he counts 300,000 in Israel, right? And I believe 10,000 of Yehuda. I got the numbers wrong, it could be 30,000 Yehuda. Right, so there is always Yehuda's always counted separately. They're always thought of separately. They have, so he calls it um, uh, the honor. He calls it the honor and the yeah. And this is three hundred thousand of Israel and thirty thousand of Yehuda. Why is Yehuda always counted separately? So the Ramban, I'm sorry, the Barbara goes into a whole discussion of how he does not agree with the Ramban who says, Yehuda. So Ramban has a problem because if Yehuda means Yehuda will always be king. So then what do you do about the comment that Shmuel makes when Shaul messes up? He says, if you hadn't messed up, your kingship would have endured. So Ramban himself asked the question, what does that mean? And he goes into this whole pill pull that maybe he would have been a second secondary kingdom, you know, or he would have been a separate kingdom, you know, would be the, the children of Yosef would be uh, under Shaul's family. And the, it's, it's a strange thing. So the Bible has, no, has, you know, he shoots the whole thing down. And he says, well, really? The real answer is, is not talking about kingship. And it never says that the king has to be from Yehuda. There is no such indication. 
It happens to turn out. He says, Yehuda always is first in honor. They're always first tribe. They, they travel first in the desert. So Yehuda has certain um, leadership, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the kings all have to be from Yehuda. And in fact, they're not. In the Northern Kingdom, most, none of them are from Yehuda. So there's plenty of kings who are not Yehuda. So the Bible says that the Ramban is understanding as only the kings, but he sees Shevet as a whole different thing. That's, that's really the debate there. But it's kind of the question of why does God pick this particular individual when he doesn't seem to be leadership material. And, you know, it, it appears that when it says like, um, there's no one better than him. So it could be like David is probably on the scene, but he's probably too young, he's not ready. So at this point in time, Shaul is the most deserving and the most appropriate. But the problem is that, you know, personality wise, you know, he has difficulties, you know, doing what he should be doing as king. Right? And then sh- and, in Peretet Vav, Shmuel says to him, Your problem, Shaul, is you're small in your own eyes. You have to, you know, you have to grow into this part. You have to say, well, I'm, I'm the king now. And the time when Shaul becomes king is, is really already when he's in opposition to David. Then he becomes very, so that's why the Chazal say, you know, now you, now you want to hang on to your seat. Now, you know, they used to have um, cartoons in Israel of the long-standing Knesset members like with their, I forget who it was, I think it was Yosef Borg, like walking around with a chair attached to him. I remember this cartoon. He never will give up his seat, ever. So that's, uh, that's sad, sad. Shaul is kind of a tragic figure. But chapter yeah. 11, next week, there he does good. There's his, uh, definitely his finest hour. Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely the potential is there. That's what's sad. Because right. I mean, the potential wasn't there. Moshe Haya Adam, also Moshe was extremely. Moshe did nice. not want to be the leader either. Right. But once he became leader, he led. And Shaul kind of, right? He was not not able to overcome his own, you know, poor self-image. Like said, we call it that today. He really couldn't get past that and say, yeah. And the times when he does are inspiring. When he says, oh no, can't be like that. But uh, fortunately, <clears throat> but he's kind of, you know, he's kind of set up for failure from the beginning. Let's not kid ourselves because David is waiting in the wings and the timing is off. Shem's not happy. But Shmuel, Shmuel becomes very attached to him. He really, really wants him to succeed. And I find that to be very, very touching. Because Shmuel didn't want to have a king either. But once he becomes king, Shmuel is all in. And he's so sad when he fails. And he's so anxious for him to succeed. And Shaul is devastated when Shmuel dies. I mean, he can't without him. 
Yeah. Wow. That's his mentor. That's his, uh, yeah. But anyway. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Always that those. Uh, yeah. Right. Anyway, that's, that's the, the general outline of it. There's a lot, there's a lot of discussion about Shaul and, you know, have you ever read Bachrach? It's great. It's great. He basically says that his failures are not failures of personality, but failures of um, leadership. Like he's, uh... <sighs> anyway, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. We have a lot to learn from all these great people. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's out.